0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hi,
1: everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. It's Adam. Um, We're about to listen to Dr. Susan Sheckle of the Stony Brook English Department discuss why Whitman has been experiencing a bit of a renaissance since the advent of the pandemic. More people are reading work more people are taking inspiration from his work uh susan uh shackle is one of the is one of andrew's close faculty connections at stony brook and she's also someone i worked with i i always learn a lot when susan talks i've worked with her before i was the ta in a class that she co-taught in my first semester at stony brook so she was my introduction to stony brook being in her class um, helping her grade papers, etc. Back in autumn of 2010, uh, something that impressed me back then, and I would say continues to impress me now, 10 years later, is how uh, passionate she gets when she talks, how she's able to embody uh, just the joy and excitement that Whitman especially fills his poetry with, useful to everyone who listens. Uh, first, it's an introduction to someone you might need in your life. We're sorely lacking in connection these days. For many of us, are isolated, uh, our lives are lacking in erotic connection and familial connection, and I don't know about the rest of you. I mean, I do know about the rest of you. Um, we're also lacking in spiritual connection to our fellow humans, and Whitman is the poet of connection i i do believe that um and susan describes in in great detail the ways in which his poetry and prose can uh can help us i don't know renew the sense of connection in our lives what was that that was first second it's a model for how to run a lecture online lecturing uh uh over zoom it's easy to feel and this is a Here's this word again disconnected, right? Uh, That lack of connection Susan's enthusiasm is more forceful than bubbly And I think the forcefulness of her speaking bridges the distance uh, Created by this artificial medium of online meetings third third her discussion of the history of that Whitman lived through war and plague and Political division uh, is a useful antidote to the risk of wallowing in the crisis that we 're going through our own historical moment. I believe and continue to believe that the way to feel better at, um, the way to feel better at moments of crisis is to connect there's that we're that word again, Um, to connect with other people who are also at moments of crisis and thinking about other times in history makes me feel kinship uh, with those other eras and makes me feel hopeful about the present era. Okay, one last thought. I really enjoy these segments we've been including from Andrew's classes. Um, This is the second one we've had so far. The first one was with uh, Renee Chambers Luciaga discussing her work as a director um, and a producer of theater in this you know COVID era Uh, you can see that the same place you see all of our other podcasts um, and it's very illuminating so here we see another of Andrew's segments and I take a lot of satisfaction in seeing how Andrew rises to the occasion of online teaching by inviting guests, all the other ways he keeps things interesting and exciting for his students. So without further ado, here's Andrew introducing his guest, our colleague, Dr. Susan Shekel.
2: So Professor Susan Shekel has been very kind enough, and you've heard me talk about her presence in my own academic work with Whitman a lot, and you saw um, the symposium that we both were a part of and hopefully watched her presentation but if not she's going to do um, similar civil war type work during her discussion today um, which is why i assigned the wound dresser because professor shekel does a really deep dive with the wound dresser and it's um i'm always fascinated with your close reading analysis of it, uh, Professor Shekel. So just to, if you haven't met uh, Professor Shekel in the English department, uh, she is all things American literature. <laughs> um, for me, she's the 19th century American lit whisperer, but uh, she does go into the 18th century and I think even the 17th century. Um, and I'm really glad that she decided and was eager to come and talk with you all because we've just ended our conversation on Into the Woods and putting that in conversation with uh, Vigil Strange, um, I kept on the field from the Drum Taps collection and talking about mourning and grief. And um, because Professor Shekel works so much on medical literature and race and um, thinking through pandemics, um specifically lost in the civil war but even speaking to now i thought this would be a great transition into um uh mark Doty's book and i'm just going to read a quick line because i think it really helps um from his preface sum up the experience we're having right now which um his preface is called apparition and he's trying to uh reclaim whitman and connect with him beyond the grave almost in a Ouija board situation. But um, for us right now, I like this quote he says, which is, uh, does seeing an apparition come with a responsibility? Gift or summons, what might this echo of Walt Whitman want of me? There may be many answers to that, that question, but I'd begin with this one. The same thing he wanted from us when he was living, company. And I think especially in such an isolating time right now, I don't think uh, Mark Doty knew that his book would come out during a pandemic, uh, but it's very timely and prescient and um, I feel a lot of the company and energy here right now. So without further ado, I'm going to pass this conversation on to Professor Shekel and how she's checking in with Whitman right now. So welcome, thank you so much, Professor Shekel.
3: Well, thank you, Andrew, for that lovely introduction. I really do feel as if we are partners in Whitman. We have worked together for so many years now on so many different events, celebrating Whitman's work, calling attention to it, sharing the joy that we find in it. Uh, It's really nice to be here with you talking about Whitman. And I know that the topic of um, your course is looking at the impact that Whitman has had, um, even centuries uh, after his, his birth. Um, and I, I think that my appearance here began with a conversation I was having with Andrew um, about how many references I was seeing to Whitman's writings at this particular time.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And I think I was thinking through that and it, it really made sense to me. Um, it made sense to me in two different ways of why Whitman speaks to us at this moment in the 21st century so powerfully. Um, And I guess now I will switch to my slideshow, so um, bear with me while I share the screen. Um, Okay, let's see. I think that this should do it. Okay, share, play from start. Um, Yeah, that's a good backdrop for us. Uh, And so my topic is just to kind of continue with you the conversation that I had with Andrew about why, why Whitman now. Um, He has spoken to many writers um, from the time his writings emerged. He's inspired their own writings, their own thoughts. They felt a sense of connection to him. But especially now, um, Whitman is popping up everywhere. Um, And I think that there are there are kind of two reasons that at least I feel for that resonance we feel now with Whitman. One is that we are in a time that is tremendously polarized and divided. And so was Whitman. Um, And one of the, um, oh, let's see, uh, this is not going to work because all of your lovely pictures are right where my slideshow is. I am going to try to, Whoopsie, Let's see if I can move all of you down a little bit. Let's see if this works. Okay, if I make you move down, yes, that worked. Great. And now you are at the bottom of my slideshow, which makes it a lot easier to read my sli- slides. Um, <laughs> um, and this was just one of the more recent uh, quotations of Whitman. It was in the New York Times where they did an entire uh, style magazine um, piece uh, focusing on Whitman. Now, uh, some of the images were a little silly uh, because they were showing models dressed up in attire that um, the various designers and the person putting together this piece thought resonated with Whitman's words. Well, Looking at the price tag of the items just made me laugh. I mean, there were kind of baggy sweaters for 2000 uh, $1,900 pseudo-workman's trousers where they were even afraid to put the price. It was like price upon inquiry. It's like, oh boy. Now that part Whitman would not have resonated with because he really was um, from the working class. Um, He started his working life at age 11, uh, was pulled out of school, um, had to work to help support the family. His father was a builder, but he's he had the worst business sense and the worst luck of any businessman. He was constantly losing homes, staking his future on a, a building boom in Brooklyn and moved the family off of their farm on Long Island and into Brooklyn to try to catch that wave of the building boom. Well, he had the right idea, but he was, you know maybe a century and a half late, um, taking rise on that um, that boom in Brooklyn. Um, And so there wasn't money for Walt to continue going to school. Um, So he started working at a very young age, um, between working for printers in New York City and coming and helping his father with construction. He really was a working man and identified with the working men. And so I think he would have raised his eyebrows a little bit at the prices being charged for the attire that evoked his sensibility. Um, But the essay that accompanied um, the images was I think quite accurate in its sense that we need to think about Walt Whitman now. And just the way in which Jesse Green opens um, that essay which accompanied the photographs was to note that during the Civil War era the writer emerged as an emblem of the country's dissonance. Now, in the midst of another all-consuming national crisis, his work feels uncannily relevant. And I believe it does. And I believe that's why so many people now are quoting and invoking the spirit of Walt Whitman, the vision of Walt Whitman, his vision of the nation, because there is a sense that his capacity to contain multitudes, to embrace differences as what makes America strong, what gives it its vitality, not what tears it apart. People are reaching for a vision that can encompass differences without eliminating them, because you will never eliminate differences in a, in a country this diverse. But what Whitman did is he embraced all of the differences. I am the poet of the slave, and I am the poet of the slave owner, of the one who will fight to the death to destroy slavery, and the one who will die defending it. He knew you would never get Americans to agree on anything. But if we could just shift our vision to understand that it is that passionate belief in sometimes utterly contradictory ideologies, values, that gives America its unique Creativity and energy and power. If we could just embrace and and see the humanity, even in those who are as opposed in their lives as the slave and the slaveholder, and the the abolitionists fighting to destroy slavery, the southerners willing to give their lives to defend it. If we could somehow shift our view to say. We must continue to strive for what we believe is right, but my opponent is a human being and a fellow American. And I love even the one who I adamantly and to my dying breath disagree with. That's what Whitman was trying to find a way to envision and to share that vision with Americans at a moment when he really saw the divisions tearing the country apart. Now, his first major poetic attempt to articulate a vision that could embrace multitudes, that could, that could respond with love, even to those who were radically opposed to each other and could share a vision to fellow Americans of how that might be, came in his first great work, Leaves of Grass, published in 1855. And again, by the 1850s, it was clear this nation was headed for war. Um, The Compromise of 1850 was a real turning point uh, because that's the moment when there was a, a desperate attempt by law to hold the country together by making various compromises. One of those compromises was that the Fugitive Slave Law would now be enforced in the North. The Fugitive Slave Law, which was a law that said, if you encounter a fugitive slave, who has stolen him or herself from the ownership of their master? Um, it is your duty as an American to return that property to your fellow American. This law was to those who felt slavery was wrong, it was a violation of their very sense of who they were. Now it had been on the books a long time, and people politely ignored it, and nobody enforced it. but in 1850 there one of the agreements was we will now enforce it. And that led to such deep division. Um, And it led to more militant um, advocacy against slavery, including um, Bloody Kansas, John Brown's raid. Um, Violence started to erupt when the law said we must enforce this contradictory and divisive law. Um, and return those who have escaped slavery to their bonds. Uh, That was really the beginning. So it was in, after all of this had unfolded, when Whitman could see this nation is tearing itself apart, violence has already started to erupt, um, that he said, I must articulate a different vision if this nation, if this union is to be saved. And I pulled just a few lines from the beginning of, Uh, the first poem in Leaves of Grass. Um, There were no titles at that point, um, no sections, no author, just you opened the book and you were swept into a radically new poetic vision in a radically new style of poetry, a a style that broke free from the rigid rhyme and meter that led to the kind of conventional sing-songy poetry um, that, I don't know, people don't... don't, um, um, memorize poetry anymore, but all the 19th century poetry I memorized, it was not Walt Whitman, because it's hard to memorize Whitman. It was the sing-songy stuff. Um, I think that I, I shall never see a sight as lovely as a tree, or by the shores of Kichigumi where the etc., you know, you got it. And he said, no, the poetry I will write will come out of my body. It will have a natural form. Um, it will be suited to its subject. I will be not bound by rigid constraints because I need a vision and a poetry expansive enough to embrace all of America and to change in its rhythms as my subject changes. And so this came near the beginning of that first radical poem. Um, It begins with, um, I celebrate myself and sing myself, what I assume, you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as well belongs to you. A radical gesture of saying, To be an American is to be an individual, but the individualism I hold dear, the individualism you hold dear, that it says, I believe what I believe, and that's who I am, yeah, I embrace that too. But remember, at core, in our atoms, in what makes us up at the most fundamental level, we are one, we are pieces of this great nation. Each of us is like an atom in the whole. So he was trying to shift the frame, and I, I pull on this because I think that this line is where he really gets to the way that he was going to embrace the differences that he saw tearing the nation apart. He says, "I have heard what the talkers were talking, the talk of the beginning and the end, but I do not talk of the beginning or the end. There was never any more inception than there is now, nor any more youth or age than there is." now and will never be any more perfection than there is now nor any more heaven or hell than there is now urge and urge always the procreant urge of the world out of the dimness opposite equals advance always substance and increase always a knit of identity always distinction, always a breed of life. And that's where he tries to say, let's look at where we are now. I know you may say the world, it's it's fallen apart. Look at this, look at this, slavery here and adamant anti-slavery abolitionists there. It's like, no, there's not gonna be another day when things are more perfect. This is who we are. I'm not talking about the beginning, and I'm certainly not talking about the end of this nation. In this moment, we have the possibility of redemption. We have the possibility of affirming the meaning of this great union. Um, and what he identifies as the force, the life force, what will keep this nation going into the future, um, he refers to as the procreant urge of the world. The, just that force of life, to live, to be. And he is imagining and thinking about that. And I think that, you know, as he introduces it here, um, it serves a more metaphorical um, purpose, but, but he doesn't draw a difference. He uses sex and the force of life as a metaphor, but also in the particular, because there are other places where he says, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about sex here. Uh, yeah, and, and I want you to understand that. Sex is the force of life, and sex is nothing to be ashamed of. So he moves back and forth in the poem and all of this poetry, where he'll talk about, you know, the procreant urge, right, the, the urge to procreate, the sex drive, as something that is a kind of life force metaphorical, but also something he treasures in its particularity, in his own body, and in the bodies of those um, he loves and embraces. Um, But he says, if you look at that, what is it that keeps life going? It is the procreant urge. And this is a particular kind of sexuality. It's not the only kind he celebrates. Elsewhere, he celebrates um, homoerotic, homosexual um, drives of desire and bonding and love. He celebrates all of it. But at this moment, I think that he says, think about the procreant urge, the, the, the combination of desires and energy and life force that brings forth a future and what brings forth a future in terms of biological future is when opposites it's the same is not what it's not just uniting with what is the same as you but if you look at it metaphorically male female completely opposing categories if you think kind of in terms of the poles of this, that, white, black, male, female. Those are opposing categories, but it is only when opposites come together as equals with respect and with love that life continues. So let us look at that as a model for the oppositions, the bitter oppositions that are dividing us. Even nature offers a model that it is out of your opposites, when you come together and embrace in love as equals, that is the life force. And so I think that this is a moment where um, he is trying to put forth a different way to think about opposition. That, you know, don't stay in your bubble. He didn't have social media, but people could be in their bubbles. I only want to talk to people who are who believe what I believe and I only want to talk to people who believe what I believe over here he said no if you just look at nature as the model the only time life vitality emerges or emerges in its greatest and most creative potential is when the opposites come together as equals with love and so There was a poetic attempt the poem and the volume goes on at great length to try to offer different ways of thinking about the forces that could hold us together. And at this moment, he is looking at the procreant urge. He also looks at comradeship, the love of men for men, um, love of men for men, love of men for women. It is all what contributes to union. And he was trying in every way he could to stir a feeling of comradeship, of love and unity in a nation that was pulling itself apart uh, and letting those oppositions foretell death rather than produce life. Okay, that was 1855. Well, 1860, he was still feeling pretty discouraged. Um, he His great gesture of offering Uh, a new kind of epic to articulate the story and the meaning and the values of America had not really slowed down significantly the increasing political divisions. And so in his 1860, Leaves of Grass, in addition to all of the optimistic, hopeful poems that he had included in that 1855 version, he threw this one in. You can tell he's feeling pretty discouraged. Uh, This is just a a portion um, of his poem, To the States, and he's shaking his head now. It's like, I tried, I tried my best. I'm still trying. I'm still putting it out there, but really, come on, look at, listen to me, nation. What deepening twilight, scum floating atop the waters. Who are they as bats and night dogs, askant in the capital? What a filthy presidentiat. Oh, south, your torrid suns. Oh, north, your Arctic freezings. Are those really congressmen? Are those great judges? Is that the president? You can see the political despair that his poetic solution is not working. And he blames the South, he blames the North. Both extremes in this battle that are tearing the country apart are, have become so extreme that the sun of the South is now torrid. It is painful, it is not gentle and life-sustaining. And the North has become the frozen Arctic. Again, no life can come from such extremes. And the politicians, the Capitol, Washington, congressmen, the judges, the president, are not living up to the ideal he has articulated in his poetry. And this is, say, it's it's added in the 1860 edition. And it's, you see, even though he puts out his earlier poems hoping they will still somehow work the healing that he hopes for in this divided nation, This is a note of despair where he feels overwhelmed by the political situation the nation has found itself in. Now, the other way in which I feel Whitman is being invoked now in the 20th century, he's invoked in part for his vision of how to contain, embrace multitudes, how to embrace even those you deeply disagree with I think that speaks to the political climate we're in now, but I think that his writings about the war speak very, very powerfully to the situation we are finding ourselves in now as we face a pandemic that is bringing death home in the way that the Civil War brought death home to Americans as never before. I just read in today's paper that we are about to reach the point where Every American will know someone who has had COVID. Um, It is bringing our mortality home to us, this pandemic, which we can't seem to get control of. Well, the Civil War did the same thing. Uh, The death toll was the greatest of any war in American history. And the nation was small and everyone was involved. So everyone had someone who was at the war, who had been wounded, who had succumbed, To the illnesses that ran rampant through the the barracks um, and camps. Um, The suffering brought death, illness to the consciousness of Americans as never before. And these two images among the many that were out there really seemed to me to juxtapose the field hospitals that had to be set up during the Civil War because there weren't enough hospitals to take care of the vast numbers of the sick and wounded, and this is a field hospital that was set up in Central Park um, during the first really horrible wave in New York when the the illness and death rates in New York just soared so quickly that for a time, there was no room in the hospitals and they were setting up field um, hospitals. Uh, Very much a similar situation. And that awareness of our mortality, our vulnerability, um, and feeling that we are vulnerable at any moment, that those we love are vulnerable, there is nothing we can do, that sense of helplessness, I think is another reason why we are now turning to Whitman's writings, especially the writings uh, that came during the war, when he spent most of the war um, from it was, a, almost, it was a year into the war um, when he received news uh, that his brother had been wounded. He went to find his brother to try to help, to try to nurse him because he had heard how terrible the conditions were in the field hospitals. And he found his brother who luckily just had a minor flesh wound on his jaw and was doing fine. Uh, but what he saw along the way, he could not leave. And he spent the rest of the war except for uh, periods, really one long period when he was sent home because his own health collapsed, nursing the soldiers um, who had been wounded in the war. Even after the war ended, he stayed. He stayed in Washington, DC, where those who were still suffering and, and recovering from the illnesses and wounds of war were still there. He stayed to the end. Now, when he went to look for his brother, He found him in a field hospital in Fredericksburg. Um, This is, I couldn't find a picture of the field hospital at Fredericksburg, but this one is really close to the description. He talks at one point about how the first sight he saw when he came to the field hospital where his brother was, was a heap of arms, legs, hands, feet, piled by a tree about 20 feet from the house. It's as close as I could come to an image uh, that evokes that, because here there is a house that was serving as the headquarters for the doctors to stay and then the yard all around, just the bodies piled on the ground waiting to be taken into one of the tents that was set up to deal with the wounded. And this sight never left him and pervaded his poetry and his writings for decades afterwards. That sense of precious human beings being turned into a heap, cast aside like a pile of garbage. Um, That dehumanization produced by suffering at this scale moved him in a way that he simply could not shake loose of. And it made him see the suffering of his fellow Americans in a different light, in a more powerful, and personal way. He felt the kind of of empathy, the kind of comradeship and connection he had always talked about in his poetry, it took on a powerful and individual reality that sunk deep into his heart and truly it changed his poetry. Um, The early poetry, most of it had been optimistic and expansive and on the move and just, if I can just move fast enough and far enough and spread my arms wide enough, I can just embrace all of Americans within myself. This was something where even his embrace could not make it better in a way. And it was much more the face-to-face with that, the scale of suffering, but the individuality of each one of those suffering as he was among the wounded and the sick, it changed his poetry. And I will look at the way that it changed his poetry. But I just want first to look at his attempt to explain the impact that this had upon him, this experience of encountering so many young Americans who were were risking their lives and suffering unbearable pain in the cause of holding together this nation, the same cause he had embraced in his poetry. And here he saw their lives, their sacrifice as a kind of living poetry to make America, which he once referred to as the greatest poem, cohere, harmonize, whole again. So here he was writing home um, near the beginning of his time. Uh, in the hospitals, when he was just finding his place there. He wrote to his mother in September of 1863, I go to hospital every day or night. I believe no men ever loved each other as I and some of these poor, wounded, sick, and dying men love each other. So what he saw there was embodied the kind of comradeship that he had written about. And longed for always uh, in his life, in his own life. But also, he felt if that spirit of love and comradeship could really be felt as strongly as he had at times felt it himself, that 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 could hold this nation together. And here he saw a kind of love for country um, with what these individuals were willing to sacrifice, but also the love for each other and for him as he sat with them and attempted to do what he could to alleviate their suffering. And here he was writing, this was to a neighbor um, who he was close to, um, one of uh, uh, the the neighbors who lived near his, uh, his mother, his family home. And again, he tried to explain the impact of the hospitals. In the hospitals, among these American young men, I could not describe to you what mutual attachments and how passing deep and tender these boys. Some have died, but the love for them lives as long as I draw breath. It was he had taken in, taken to heart, the kind of love that they had showed and the love that he felt in return as he admired respected and tenderly loved these boys who were suffering so deeply. And part of the suffering that he wrote about elsewhere was the fact that they were suffering alone. He wrote in another one of his letters to his sister, I sat by one of these men when I realized he was there, no friend, no family, to give him that kind of tender affection that we need when we are suffering and need even more when we are dying. No one to hold the hand. So I took my place. I held his hand. I will be family to him. And that's another part where I feel there's a real resonance with the kind of suffering that COVID has brought because part of the real pain is not to be able to be with your loved ones, not to be able to just hold their hand and say, I love you, not to be able to sit with the dying and just by your presence when words are impossible to let them know they are not alone, that they are loved, you are with them on this journey. And that was especially important in the 19th century because this country was largely a a Christian country that believed in salvation after death, and part of the mourning rituals that were set up at that time, it required the family to sit with the dying, to be there around the clock, to watch, because they felt in those last moments of the last breaths of life, not only did you need to give that comfort to your loved one, you needed to be there to see the signs, as if you would see heaven open at that moment, and, and it would help you to be at peace, to know that your loved one was saved and was going to heaven. There were elaborate books describing how do you know in that last moment they felt that God will send a sign that his or her embrace is lifting the soul to heaven. And so the pain produced by The inability to be with your loved one was intense in the 19th century, in part because of the religious framework, the framework of meaning around those final moments, that it was a pain for the one who died alone, but also for the family who could not be there um, to do what it was their part to do um, at this last moment of their loved one's life. But I think even though our beliefs are different, the people who I've spoken to who have had their loved ones in the hospital, some have died, some have recovered, but the horrible pain that they have felt is not being able to be there, not to be able to to take the hand and squeeze it and make sure that your loved one is surrounded by love and by the assurance of that love at the final moment. And so I think that that's another place where The widespread presence of death that is now we are living with in this pandemic, the sense of vulnerability, but also the sense of loss of the ability to be with those you love. I think that that's another way that this moment resonates with that moment that was so important in shaping Whitman as a poet. Because as he wrote to his sister, I must be with them, I must be their family now. Um, and that is what he did. He just went every hour he could. He was working to support himself in Washington, but they were irregular hours. Um, he was working in the paymaster's um, office and then later in the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Uh, he had He took every spare moment he could to simply sit with those who were ill to bring them comfort to try to step in and take that part of a parent, a husband, wife, a beloved sibling, just to be with them. And there is a kind of stillness and pervasive love that comes through in the poetry he wrote during this time. That is very different from the more bombastic and proclamatory tone of the more optimistic, poetry he wrote before the war, thinking that maybe his words could ward off this great um, threat to the nation he loved. And so I think that the poem that best exemplifies the new tone, the attitude that he struck in relation to the wounded, uh, to me is the dresser. Um, And I use the version that was in the very first publication of the poems that he he was writing these poems, all during the war. You can see his notebooks at the time, he'll jot down ideas, he'll jot down fragments. He was, he was trying through his writing to process the meaning of what he was experiencing and then he took all of these um, poems and notes uh, when he was indeed sent home um, about a year before the war's end because his health had collapsed and he took them to a publisher and arranged for their publication then. But these were the poems he was writing as he was sitting with the soldiers um, and talking to them. And some of the poems deal with battle. He wasn't in battle. He did travel to some of the field hospitals that were right on the battle lines, but the visions of battle that he presents are those that came from listening to the stories, to listening to whatever the soldiers wanted to talk about. He listened, he took it in, and he put some of that out in this collection of poetry also. But much of the poetry is about bearing witness to suffering, illness, and death, because that is, was his primary service during the war, a witness, a comfort to, those, to the suffering of those who were fighting. Um, now, before we go through the poem, I wanna take a little break and see, are there any questions, comments? And i better take a drink so I can keep my voice going.
2: Well, I was going to just ask, because um, my students have read a lot of, we've read a lot of 1860. We did a lot of 1855, 1860, um, and you're helping fill the gap with the Civil War poetry. Um, But we also, they've read a lot of specimen days and a little of democratic vistas. So I was wondering, do you think Professor Sheckle that um, you're speaking to the tone that's now present in drum taps, um, and maybe you wanna answer this later because it'll be out of chronology, but do you think that there's a way that Whitman in his later writings, he always now has a certain questioning cynical tone to his Prose voice, or is it more of him trying to rehabilitate um, his own legacy and his narrative?
3: Oh yeah, that is that is interesting, and I I don't think I can answer it very completely. I do think he becomes more questioning.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: The cynicism is not always there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he goes through moods, you know. Where I mean, but but some of the poetry still is so beautiful and optimistic in a way, not bombastic, not the, the kind of cocky confidence that he had in the 1855,
0: mm-hmm. that is gone. Mm-hmm. He
3: feels his limitations. He feels more questioning, less certain, absolutely. And then the question, I, I don't think, the cynicism pops up now and then, um, but I don't think it's consistent. I think that he never gives up. And, you know, he keeps publishing and revising and thinking, well, if I can just get this book right, um, part of it, if I just get it right, I'll be one of the world's great poets, he'll be remembered and read forever. Yeah, he had a, a healthy ego, I think, and there's part of that. But I I don't think he ever gave up on feeling that he was the poet of the nation, hmm. the poet yeah. of America, and that he still envisioned a nation better than what he saw around him. I yeah. don't think he gave that up entirely. It's tempered, he does not have that extreme confidence and, you know, hey, I got this, I, I can solve this, that comes through in some of the earlier poetry. Uh, but I think that the, he is still hoping that yeah. what he says and how he says it might still reach people. He starts to feel more and more that the real audience, the audience who will really understand what he's saying is to come later. Mm. He starts to feel that his his age is not ready for this. And certainly his age wasn't ready for a lot of what he offered, uh, a lot of his celebration of the body and sexuality, a joyous celebration of sexuality. Um, Yeah, the world was not ready for him in those ways, but I think he increasingly felt that the audience I am writing to, the audience who will understand me is in the future. Um, but even at the beginning, he had a little inkling of that. I mean, if you think of the way that, you know, what became Song of Myself ends, you know, look for me under your boot soles, yeah. you know? So he felt like, I'm, I'm here, wherever you are on your journey, I'm here. I am, I am the journey in a way, because I am, you know, wherever you are on that, He says, I will be there, um, just up ahead, waiting for
0: you.
3: He always felt that the message he had, well, say in the first 1855, if you read the preface, it's like, okay, okay, I got it. I got it here, folks, you know? And it's like, I see this nation as it really is, the greatest poem, and I am going to speak that poem. And when you hear that poem, you will see the harmony, the unity, um, the beauty and the potential, and you won't possibly be willing to destroy all this. I mean, he's really confident there. He loses that confidence, and he increasingly feels that he will not be understood until another another era comes. And I, I think that there is something to that. I mean, if you look at the number of of poets who have felt, oh my God, you know, this guy, he was ahead of himself. He... He was the beginnings of a real American poetry and I want to take that baton. He's handing it to me. I mean, that it's like, it went over generations. I mean, I, um, the number of 21st, 20th century poets, especially who felt this is what I am trying to do and carry on with and who write back to Whitman, but write Whitman forward and who feel that what he was trying to do is what they're trying to do uh, in a, a slightly different form, but they feel that connection. So I think he was right in a way. I think that the, I mean, there were a few people who really loved him, um, but for the popular audience, and actually a lot of poets too, to embrace him it was only after the Civil War and that version of him that emerged, his friend O'Connor um, put forth the notion of the good gray poet, mm. basically trying to save him after he was being accused of being a pervert and was fired from his job for being obscene. You know, it's like, no, no, you don't know, he's the good gray poet. That version of Whitman, Americans at his time could kind of accept, but that was not all of Whitman. And that was not really the majority of Whitman. And so I think that he wasn't fully understood in his time and that sank in and that made him sad. Maybe not exactly cynical, because I think he just had this endless kind of hopefulness. Um, so yeah, I don't think all of the revisions were an attempt to um, burnish his legacy. I think that part of it was, I've got to get this right. Because even if it's not understood now, I want to send a kind of love letter to the future. I, I want to pass along the, he thought of it as his Bible in a way, the, the truth as he saw it, the divinity of human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to pass it along in the right form yeah. uh, to the future. So,
2: yeah, and I love, like, you just spoke to what Makiba just asked, which was, um, was Whitman writing for an, a time in that America hadn't yet lived up to, or this America not yet here?
3: I think he was, I think, increasingly. I say, at the beginning, he thought he could make it so, you know, that if he could speak it clearly enough and powerfully enough, people would feel what he felt and would embrace what he embraced Mm
0: -hmm. and
3: even getting over their you know kind of repressed victorian attitudes toward the body is he thought if i could just describe the body in its unbelievable beauty and naturalness as god's you know great handiwork if i can just describe sex for the beautiful joyous loving action it is and feeling it is then they'll get it you know he kind of thought that he could bring America with him to where he was, but you know, as time went on, I think he became resigned that he was increasingly writing, you know, for the future.
2: Yeah, yeah, and he was the poet of the outsiders. Yeah, uh, especially when my students have looked into his relationship with Oscar Wilde, I think that really brings that register to bear. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, this was. where I'm really, I know I'm really um, enraptured right now. So, and I'm sure my students are, so thank you. This is, we're excited to get back into the dresser. And I think you're providing a lot of catharsis right now um, to think about, to think about these difficult times.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, it's Whitman was, living through times that in so many ways were difficult in, in, in parallel ways to what we're experiencing now, we, not only we, but many are turning back to Whitman because of those resonances, the deep divisions that really seem to have gone so far that we can't imagine how we can truly be a harmonious, loving United Nation again. And then this experience of death under these particularly difficult conditions where it is pervasive but it is isolating at the same time. That each of us feels connected to death and illness, but we can't be there to provide the human connection that helps us get through these difficulties. Um, It's that combination of inescapable but but isolating uh, confrontation uh with suffering and illness and death that i think also has made us turn to whitman so now again the the wound dresser or the dresser as it was originally called i think is the place where you can really kind of see the way that he tries to frame the meaning of his experience with the sick and wounded and so let's see i'm now i'm getting all heated up Um, Hold on a second. I I have the heater on in my little, this is a a porch converted to a study and I'm I've heated up so much with excitement that I have to turn the heater down. So I'll be right back here. Uh, Boo Boo can little Bella can take over for me. Okay, I'm back. I'm uh, just turning the heat off because I'm this always happens. Uh Oh, I hope I can. Okay, oh, okay. there, uh, I, get, I get too excited and then I, um, my temperature goes up too. Uh, okay, so this poem, again, at the heart of his experience of the Civil War was nursing the wounded. Now, again, there are visions of war, they come secondhand, they're part of what the, the soldiers experienced and talk about before they arrived, but his deepest experience of the war was tending To the wounded. And so, this poem is a poem where he tries to articulate as fully as possible what that meant to him um, and how he experienced it and how he kind of made sense of it. And so, this is the poem I want us to look at carefully to understand how he experienced, but even more than that, how he transformed that experience into poetry that he hoped could convey to others. The meaning, the love, the tenderness, that to him was the greatest and most most meaningful experience of his life. He wrote several times that this is when I found my voice as a poet, this was this incredibly transformative experience for him. And he wants others to feel the meaning that he found in the sacrifice that he witnessed so closely of those who had fought to save this nation. So he speaks in the persona of an old man. He is not old when this is written. (coughs) So the first thing you need to understand is that he takes on the character. He says, how can I tell this story? I must tell it from the perspective of an old man bending. I come among new faces, years looking backward, resuming in answer to children. Come tell us old man, as from young men and maidens that love me, years hence of these scenes, of these furious passions, these chances, of unsurpassed heroes, was one side so brave, the other was equally brave. Now be witness again, paint the mightiest armies of earth, of those armies so rapid, so wondrous, what saw you to tell us? What stays with you latest and deepest? Of curious panics, of hard fought engagements, or sieges tremendous, what deepest remains? Okay, so I'm gonna pause here because here he's setting up, it's, it's really a dramatic, it's a kind of dramatic scenario. It's almost a dramatic monologue. He sets the scene, he casts the character, the speaker, the eye is an old man bending, years hence. Well, this wasn't years hence, it was 1865. You know, It's like he was writing in the middle of it, but to get the meaning, he said, no, it's gotta be years hence. And he creates a dramatic scenario Where young people, children, those who have never experienced the war themselves, that's who he's talking to. Because I forget who it was who said he's writing to the future. He wants this poem to speak beyond those who have their own experience of the war, to convey the meaning of the war to those who never, never experienced it themselves. He wants it, the message, the meaning, the value of this war to be understood even by those distant. So he sets up this scenario. And then he imagines the young people asking him, tell us, tell us old man, what stays with you, latest and deepest? So that's like, what's the, what's the takeaway here? What, what was it really about? And they're kind of prompting him because he's not immediately speaking, right? And they're saying, oh, panics of, of hard fought engagements, of sieges, tremendous. What deepest remains? Okay, so just to get your input here, um, what what's gained by setting a scenario of of an old man speaking to children? Oh, I better ask. When does class end? I, I better time myself here. Andrew, how long does class I go? I had
2: until four, but so if anyone has, oh to- no, 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 you're fine. Okay, has to leave. They uh, they fulfilled their duty.
3: Okay. Uh, yeah, continue. Um, we can oh, get Okay. To over 15. Well, okay, I won't ask as many questions if I'm running behind schedule. Okay. Um, okay, so we see sets a scene. Okay, so now let's get to it. Um, so let me see. Next slide. I divided this. Oh, now he's kind of answering. The the young people are asking. It's like, come on, tell us. What was it really like, old man? Oh, maidens and young men I love and that love me. What you ask? Ask of my days, those the strangest and sudden your talking recalls. Soldier alert, I arrive after a long march, covered with sweat and dust. In the nick of time, I come, plunge in the fight. Loudly shout in the rush of successful charge. Enter the captured works, yet low like a swift running river. They fade, pass, and are gone. They fade. I dwell not on soldiers' perils or soldiers' joys. Both I remember well, many the hardships, few the joys, yet I was content. But in silence, in dreams, projections, while the world of gain and appearance and mirth goes on, so soon what is over forgotten and waves wash the imprints off the sand. In nature's reverie sad, with hinged knees returning, I enter the doors, while for you up there, whoever you are, follow me without noise and be of strong heart. Okay, so here is the turn, the volta of the poem. He says, okay, I'll try to give you what you want. I'll I'll try, and it's like, okay, I'll remember. You want to hear about the battles and the heroes and all of that, and he tries, but he can't. Because that question they ask, what deepest remains? No, that's not. Those memories, they're up here, but they're not in here. That's not what deepest remains. What deepest remains is the service of the wounded and the sick and the dying in the hospital doors. And that is where I must take you if you are to understand what deepest remains. And so then again, he's writing to the future. You up there, it's not up there so much as up ahead. Whoever you are, follow me. And that is where he takes us. Okay, Now we've gone through those hospital doors to the space where what deepest remains, resides. Bearing the bandages, water, and sponge, straight and swift to my wounded, I go where they lie on the ground after the battle brought in, where their priceless blood reddens the grass, the ground, or to the rows of the hospital tent, or under the roofed hospital, to the long rows of cots up and down each side. I return to each and all, one after another. I draw near, not one do I miss? An attendant follows, holding a tray, he carries a refuse pail, soon to be filled with clotted rags and blood, emptied and filled again. Okay, so, okay, what I wanna point to here is, what he's struggling with is that each one, the number of times he says one, you could circle it or highlight it, he's registering every single one has priceless blood but the scale oh my god it's rows of cots up and down each side to each and all one after another he's struggling how do i give the respect the love due to every precious individual who has suffered and shed their blood in this cause to save this nation this union how do i Give that respect to each one when there are so many. How? And that's what he's struggling with here. That every drop of blood is precious, every single one. But there's so much that the scale makes it like garbage. It fills a garbage pail to be dumped and filled again. And so it's like that pile of arms, legs, hands. He goes on to say one full cartload because he imagined somebody has to haul it away like garbage, like the garbage, but it's precious. It's that, that struggle to register the individual and, and treat each individual with the care and respect deserved, while so overwhelming in terms of the number and scale. So it's like, okay, I onward go, I stop. It's like, what, what you're stopping? This is another place where the the hard stop at the end of the line, it makes you stop, but then it's enjambment because you think, I onward go, I stop. It's like, oh no, don't give up, he's stopping. No, read on. So the, the meaning flows over. I stop with hinged knees and steady hand to dress wounds. And so he's not abandoning, but he is stopping with hinged knees. And that idea, which has repeated now twice, of hinged knees, it's such, here, I have to get up to, to do this. Um, it's such a powerful image because he's stopping with hinged knees, so that means practically he's, he's stopping so that he can go down because we've been told they're on the ground. So now my little dog has gone to the ground, so I have to hinge my knee to rub her tummy, right? I stop with hinged knees, and steady hand to dress wounds instead of rubbing tummies. I am firm with each. The pangs are sharp yet unavoidable. But now they're hinged because he has to bend and get up so often and now move to the next, bend and rise again. So it's a literal metaphor that his knees feel like creaky hinges. They have to keep bending up, bending up bending up, you get that sense, oh my God, it's endless like a hinge, down, up, down, up, down, up. But it's also the gesture of genuflection. And so again, he's combining in the mundane service of the needs of each one. He is also genuflecting before each one. And we genuflect before a king or queen, or if you were raised Catholic, you have to genuflect every time you turn away from the sanctuary. So when you walk in to the church, you are facing the sanctuary before you turn to go to your, your seat, you must genuflect to honor God before you turn from him. It's that same gesture of the deepest respect that you would give to God or to a king or queen if you're in that country that is also the meaning of that gesture—it uh, works on the kind of practical and literal sense, and on the symbolic sense also. Um, uh, so he um, he moves. Um, whoopsie! Sorry, I, I I hit something not meaning to. Um, he moves forward, uh, stopping only to move forward, um, and turns. One turns to me his appealing eyes poor boy, I never knew you, yet I think I could not refuse this moment to die for you if that would save you. So in this stanza, it's so interesting because he takes the mundane action of tending the needs of the wounded, turns it into a kind of genuflection, seeing within each one the divine, as again, if it's Christian faith, that Christ was willing to give his life to redeem the world, even though he was the one who was not sin, had no sin himself, to redeem the sins of the world, he gave his life. So that is a kind of the the elevation of the divine there. That each one who, in a willingness to give your life to save the country you love, it is a Christ-like sacrifice. And here, the woundresser is also saying, "I too would give my life if." I could save you. So he puts the act of nursing as another way of a willingness, a lining up to, I would give my life if I could save you, I would. But there's a kind of frustration because he's at one remove, but it's it's elevating to a kind of sacred and sacrificial level of uh, the suffering and violence that he's encountering. Okay, and so now I put all of these together because This is just a kind of sense of the overwhelmingness of it all. On, on I go, open doors of time, open hospital doors, the crushed head I dress, poor crazed hand, tear not the bandage away, the neck of the cavalryman with the bullet through and through I examine, hard the breathing rattles, quite glazed already the eye, yet life struggles hard, come sweet death persuaded, oh beautiful death, in mercy come quickly, From the stump of the arm, the amputated hand, I undo the clotted lint, remove the sloth, wash the matter and blood. Back on his pillow, the soldier bends with curved neck and side-falling head. His eyes are closed, his face is pale. He dares not look on the bloody stump and has not yet looked on it. I dress a wound in the side, deep, deep, but a day or two more for see the frame all wasted and sinking, and the yellow blue countenance. See, I dress the perforated shoulder, the foot with the bullet wound. Cleanse the one with the gnawing and putrid gangrene, so sickening, so offensive. While the attendant stands behind, aside me, holding the tray and pail. I am faithful. I do not give out. The fractured thigh, the knee, the wound in the abdomen. These and more I dress. Oh, the images are, are blocking it. With impassive hand, yet deep in my breast, a fire, a burning flame. Okay, so again, I, I'm sorry, I'm not asking questions because I know I'm over time. But I'll just point out. I put all this together because it's like this is like the hospital version of his catalogs, right? Where the catalogs trying to encompass all of it in a kind of joyful and expansive way, and here, the overwhelming scale of the violence suffering, the crushed and 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 violated bodies that he must deal with. It just comes in a flood. But even here where he's just listing, there are moments where he continues those themes he's begun. I mean, look at the wound in the side deep. That's like Christ on the cross. Remember to see if he was dead? The soldier stabbed deep in his side. And when water ran out instead of blood, he knew he was dead. He's, He's continuing to layer the extended metaphors and the symbols, even when he's kind of cataloging. But instead of of beauty, he is acknowledging and declaring poetic, even the gangrene, even the putrid smells. Whereas before in his poetry, he said, there is no part of the body that is disgusting. I celebrate the smell of my armpits. Ain't it wonderful? The sweetest perfume. He's doing a similar thing here to say, Yeah, this is ugly. Even the person suffering can't look on it. It is so revolting, but it is poetry. And it is part of what is making America the greatest poem whole again. There is no ugliness. This is a beautiful act of sacrifice and it all belongs in my poem. So it's again, he's, he's doing more even when he is simply cataloging. Okay. And now we move to the end of the poem. Thus, in silence, in dreams, projections. Returning, resuming. I thread my way through the hospitals. The hurt and the wounded I pacify with soothing hand. I sit by the restless all the dark night. Some are so young, some suffer so much. I recall the experience sweet and sad, many a soldier's loving arms about this neck have crossed and rested, many a soldier's quiz, kiss dwells on these bearded lips. And that is where he leaves us again, with that kiss of tenderness, of love, of comradeship, reaffirmed again, that, that kiss, that love, that binds us one to one, but now having passed through this great and painful, yet ultimately redemptive and beautiful experience of those who are willing to give so much for the country he loves. And he wants the nation of the future to remember how precious its very existence is because it took the sacrifice of these beautiful, loving, heroic soldiers to make it so. And so again, to the future, he does not want this reality to be lost. And again, that in dreams projections is so interesting because projection at the time already meant projection because there were magic lantern slides and they use that same to say that Light shown through the traces made on this surface will make an image that seems real. And he's hoping that if light can shine, if anyone picks up the traces he has made on this page, he is hoping again, it's like your t shirt, Andrew, that always look forward to you'll leave you'll cast you'll leave shadow behind you. He wants the shadows to be behind, he wants the light that is a kind of an alchemy of those, if the light of our eyes shine upon the page where he has made the marks, what will come forth is a vision of a nation that is precious because it has taken this kind of precious blood sacrifice and suffering to preserve it. So don't take that lightly don't throw it away. And so I think that that's why it speaks so powerfully. And I think that this this poem shows how he comes at a a similar sort of prophetic vision, but he comes through the individual suffering and registering the ugliness with a greater reality than in his early poetry said, there is nothing ugly, death is not ugly, sickness is not ugly, but it was words. Here, he's there and he makes you see it too and it registers all the more deeply, and he hopes it will sink in, that it will be what last at last remains and what his poetry will care for, carry forward to the future.